HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liu, and I'm so glad to be broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to be talking about labor in the food system, the often forgotten issue in the good food movement. But before we dive into why the food movement has focused more on the pesticides in your kale than on the people exposed to those pesticides, we're going to bring you a news recap and talk a little bit about some of the biggest food policy stories from the past week. Okay, first up we have um, some updates about uh, farmers. So New England farmers are worried about who will farm their land after they retire. A new study released this week by the American Farmland Trust and uh, Land for um, for Good found that 30% of New England farmers have plans to retire and leave farming in the next decade. So the majority of these uh, are also farming without a young farmer to support them. So while we see the young farmers movement growing, um, linking young farmers to retiring farmers and access to capital still remains a major obstacle. Uh, Feeding America, one of the biggest anti-hunger organizations, released their yearly update of the Map the Meal Project, which is one of the most um, interactive and localized maps on hunger that we have seen. They found that every county and congressional district has some level of food insecurity, with the national food rate um, of insecurity in the U.S. at 15.4%, which is about one in six people. So, by the way, this highlights the importance of feeding programs that, that aim to close the, f- close the food gap, like um, those made possible through CNR, the Child Re- Nutrition Reauthorization Act, which we discussed in last week's episode. Moving on, miracle of all miracles, the FDA released its guidance to industry on how to implement a law requiring calorie counts on menus and menu boards at restaurants and retail uh, food establishments with 20 or more outlets. This measure was passed into law as a part of the Affordable Care Act in 2010. 
That's right. You heard me. 2010. So the release of the FDA's final guidance marks the end of an extremely long and drawn out process. This law will go into effect starting in early May 2017. I also want to take a moment here and shout shout out to the New York City Health Department um, and the former Bloomberg administration, who um, has been implementing calorie counts on menus since 2008. Way to go, New York. And finally, soda politics is still in the news this week with Philadelphia Mayor Kenny's proposed uh, tax on sugar-sweetened beverages still getting a lot of attention. This week, Harvard researchers presented a strong case in favor of the tax, predicting that within a few years of the three cents an ounce taxes beginning, nearly 2,300 diabetes diagnoses would be prevented and 36,000 people would avoid obesity annually. Over the decade, they predict that um, there will be close to $200 million saved in health spendings. Uh, To champion this initiative, um, my favorite mayor, which if you guys don't know by now, it's Mayor Michael Bloomberg, and Laura and John Arnold, a billionaire philanthropist couple, have made contributions in support of the $825,000 pro-tax ad campaign that kicks off tomorrow. Buckle up, folks, because if I know Big Beverage, they're not going to take this one lying down. Be sure to tweet to us or direct message us at Eat Matters HRN if you would like to include a particular policy update or have thoughts on the ones we discussed today. Now, I want to turn my attention to the issue we're going to be focusing on for this episode, which is the intersection of food, labor, and policy. This intersection is so critical because if you aren't one of the 20 million Americans employed through the food chain, you are, in fact, a daily consumer in the food chain. However, much of the structural inequity faced by food production and restaurant workers has remained largely invisible to the general public. Joining me today to talk about the hands that feed us is Saru Jayaraman. Saru is a co-founder and co-director of the Restaurant Opportunities Center United, or Rock United, and the director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley. She's one of the most prominent voices, researchers, and activists working to increase wages and improve working conditions on the restaurant industry for the restaurant industry workers in the U.S. She's also the author of the national bestseller, Behind the Kitchen Door, and the recently published book, Forked, a new standard for American dining. When we decided to do a show about fair wages in the restaurant industry, Saru was the first person to come to mind, and I could not be more excited to have this conversation with her. So with that, Saru, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, we're very, very happy to have you. Um, okay, so I want to start out by orienting our listeners to the working conditions and experiences of restaurant and food chain workers that you advocate on behalf of every day. So can you help us set the stage and tell us a little bit more about who are these, um, who are the people who work in restaurants that you're fighting for? What roles are we talking about? Front, back of house? How many people does this affect? Sure. And then I'll, I'll pepper you with so, more questions in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So let's start with the whole food system. Uh, as uh, The whole food system is almost 20 million workers. It's one in five private sector workers and one in six all, all workers. Uh, one in wow. six of every worker in the United States works somewhere in the food system. Um, and if you can believe it, more than half of that almost 20 million is in the restaurant industry alone. Wow. The restaurant industry is both the second largest employer in the United States economy as a whole and by far the largest employer 
uh, in the food system. I just said it's more than half of all food system workers are in the restaurant industry alone. The restaurant industry is over 11 million workers. One in 12 Americans currently works in the U.S. restaurant industry. One in two of us has worked in the industry at some point in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. And we actually just made world history. I'm sure you heard this last year, becoming the first nation on earth in which we're now eating, spending more on eating out than we are on food eaten inside the home. And yet, despite all of that growth and the immense size of the industry, it is by far the absolute lowest paying employer in the United States. So every year, the U.S. Department of Labor puts out a list of the seven lowest paying jobs in America, or the ten lowest paying jobs in America. And every year, seven of the ten lowest paying jobs in America are restaurant jobs. In fact, only one of those seven lowest paying jobs in America is a fast food occupation. Six of the seven lowest paying jobs in America are full-service restaurant jobs, the kinds of restaurants we take our families to, we take our, we have our business meetings at, or we, ha- we take our friends to, the kind of places we go to enjoy ourselves are where the poorest workers in America work. And the eighth poorest occupation just above restaurant workers is farm workers. So eight of the 10 lowest paying jobs in America are food jobs, which makes, I like to, when I talk to food justice activists or the food movement, I say, Look, you have to understand the food system is not a bad employer. It is the absolute worst employer <laughs> in the United States. Yeah. It is eight of the ten lowest paying jobs, and seven of the ten lowest paying jobs in America are in the restaurant industry alone. And, and so you really have to ask yourself, what, what does that mean to have the largest and fastest growing sector of our economy proliferating the absolute lowest paying jobs? It means that our industry is almost single-handedly responsible for the fact that Right now, one in three working Americans lives and works in poverty. And by 2020, some economists predict it will be one in two, half of all working Americans living and working in poverty, which you then, then for anybody who cares about creating a sustainable and just food system, if half the nation can't even afford to eat, let alone eat local, organic, you know, sustainable food, then it's impossible to think about a sustainable food system without sustainable wages and working conditions for the 11 million restaurant workers and the 20 million people throughout the food chain. So what, what are some of the the current rights of these restaurant workers? And, and as you um, mentioned, um, we're, you know, we're, we're only going to be focusing on restaurant workers for this segment. This is going to be the first in a two-part segment on, lab- on labor for our listeners. And then next week, we're going to focus more on um, the agricultural workers and, and the labor issues that they face every day. But for today, we're going to focus on restaurant um, workers. And can you tell the, our listeners a little bit about um, you know, what their current uh, rights and working conditions are and how much do they typically earn? right now? Yep. Yeah. So um, the three issues that we've surveyed about seven or 8,000 workers nationally, and the three issues that continuously come up that have a lot to do with the way the law is right now is incredibly low wages. In fact, the lowest wages of any industry in the United States, um, lack of benefits like paid sick days. 90% of restaurant workers report that they don't have a single paid sick day, which means over two-thirds report that they cook, prepare, and serve our meals when they are ill, and then pretty severe racial segregation and discrimination. 
But on that first piece, the wage issue, I think most people just don't even know how wages work for the restaurant industry. Mm -hmm. You know, the reason that you've got the largest and fastest growing sector of the economy proliferating the absolute lowest paying jobs is the money, power, and influence of the trade lobby in this industry, the National Restaurant Association, which represents the Fortune 500 chains, is really led by the chains, and which have lobbied vitriolically to keep the minimum wage, especially for workers who earn tips at $2.13 an hour. That's the current federal minimum wage in 2016 for workers who earn tips. And so that incredibly low wage, which um, is earned by, you know, 6 million workers in America out of the 11 million workforce of restaurant workers, 6 million are tipped workers uh, and eligible for this lower minimum wage. Um, which varies by state, but as I said, at the federal level, it's two dollars. And, and so, when was last got, time that was you know, updated? Sorry, sorry to cut you yeah. off. When was last time <laughs> no, that was it's updated? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So April first, we saw this past April first, we commemorated the twenty fifth anniversary of the last time that wage went up from one dollar and eighty five cents to oh two dollars and thirteen cents an hour. Twenty five years which means that we actually have workers in our membership. We're an organization of workers, employers, and consumers in the restaurant industry, and we have women in our membership who uh, worked their whole lives at $2.13 an hour and now have grown daughters working in the industry, earning exactly what they earned 25 years ago, two generations of women earning $2.13 an hour. And all um, because of the money, power, and influence of a trade lobby that you know, usually goes around, the way they've gotten away with paying this low wage is that they paint the picture of a white guy working at a fancy fine dining steakhouse, and they say he's making a ton of money, there's no reason these people should actually get a wage, these are mostly white men, they make a lot of money in tips. But the truth is the government data shows 70% of tipped workers in America are women. They're disproportionately women of color, they're disproportionately single moms, they're women who work at IHOP and Applebee's and Chili's. That's where the majority of tipped workers work. Um, they're women who suffer from three times the poverty rate of the rest of the U.S. workforce and use food stamps at double the rate, which means the women who put food on our tables in America can't actually afford to put food on their own family's tables. So let me try and kind of, let me, let me see if I can, let me see if I got this. <laughs> We've got a two-tiered wage system that pays workers right. a um offensively low rate. <laughs> I think I can say that. There is no secu- right. there's no security um, it, for these workers who, these tipped workers, so they can't really plan on how, they don't know how much they're going to take home on every single day So they're re- because they're reliant on tips. And they, there's no like union or structure providing basic worker rights for these millions of people in the industry. That's right. Other okay. than us. That's Other right. than you. Okay. We've, been, we've okay. been the only group like fighting to or leading the fight to, to change this. Right. And, uh, I mean, as a result, you've got the restaurant industry in the U.S. Uh, becoming the only industry now on earth that gets away with saying we actually shouldn't have to pay our own workers' wages. You, the customers, should pay our workers' wages for us. Can we and um, can we step yeah. back and apply? I want to know, like, how did this come to pass, right? So can we, like, apply a historical lens to these to these issues, these labor issues? Um, yeah. What what factors yeah. or events in our history influenced these current policies? Well, it, it's so funny because for so many years I used to go around, you know, saying two dollars and thirteen cents an hour. These are slave wages. Yeah. And I would say it sort of uh, rhetorically, not actually knowing that this whole system originates in slavery. So 
in actuality. It turns out that tipping did not originate in the United States, it originated in the feudal homes of Europe. So think Downton Abbey. You know, these were aristocratic homes in feudal Europe where a, 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 no, a member of the nobility would give a tip to a servant on top of a wage. Okay. And that idea of tipping came to the United States in the 1850s and 1860s when rich Americans traveled to Europe and came back and tried to show off that they knew the rules of Europe. And there was a massive anti-tipping movement so popular and successful that six states in the U.S. passed complete bans on tipping. And wow. in fact, that movement spread to Europe and, and the labor movement picked it up in Europe and got rid of tipping, which right. is why there's very little tipping in, in Europe now. Yeah. And we in the States went in the opposite direction, <laughs> and the restaurant industry in particular demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves, because this is right after emancipation, and essentially argued that they should not have to pay these black workers anything at all. I mean, after, after all, they were valueless human beings until emancipation. Yeah. Uh, and so they should argue that they should not have to pay them anything at all and let them live on customer tips. And that idea was codified into the very first minimum wage law that gave tipped workers the right to a $0 wage from their employer as long as tips brought them to the actual minimum wage. And so we went from a $0 minimum wage in 1938 to a whopping $2.13 an hour in 2016, a $2 increase over almost a century. And it's been a century of a trade lobby essentially continuously arguing that they just shouldn't have to pay these workers' wages. Okay, so um, I, I'm, I'm still sort of stuck on the $2, but um, okay, jumping, jumping back to... Yeah, to, you should to, be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, jumping back to, to where we are now, present day, what are some of the policies in place um, that directly impact these, impact these restaurant workers, and how are you at Rock uh, United working to raise labor standards industry-wide? Yeah, so um, after many years of being as stuck as you said you were on yeah. this idea of a $2 wage. I can't get my head around we realized, it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were thinking, God, we just need to make that higher. It just needs to be higher. And then uh, realized that there are seven states in the United States, California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska, that have just actually rejected this whole idea altogether. These seven states for almost 50 years have said, no, this industry has to pay the full minimum wage like every other industry, and tips need to be on top of that. Well, we did research on these seven states and found that they're faring better on every measure than the 43 states with lower wages for tipped workers, higher restaurant sales per capita, higher job growth in the industry, higher job growth among tipped workers, even higher rates of tipping. People tip better in these seven states than they do in the 43 states with lower wages for tipped workers. So we realized that if that could be the way it is in these seven states, then certainly every state and Congress should just get rid of this system altogether. And we launched a campaign called One Fair Wage, calling for the full elimination of the lower wage for tipped workers. And now we have bills moving in multiple New England states, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Hampshire. Um, we have ballot measures that will be on the November ballot in a D.C. and Maine, and we are hoping in New York State that Governor Cuomo will move to fix uh, the bill that was just passed that went to 15 as a minimum wage in New York State for everybody except 300,000 tipped workers, mostly women, who were left out of the $15 increase. Um, and we're hoping that that will change in New York State as well. So uh, I think there's lots of momentum. Some of the biggest momentum is at the federal level. Congress introduced three bills proposing the full elimination of the lower wage for tipped workers based on lots of 
advocacy uh, on our part. And then maybe the most exciting part of all of this is that many, many fabulous restaurant owners have joined forces with us to say we actually believe in getting rid of this antiquated system, maybe most notably Danny Meyer, Uh who has worked with us and who has gone to completely eliminate tipping altogether in his restaurants and believes in policy that would get rid of the two-tiered wage system. And Andrew Tarlow in Brooklyn, similarly, and Tom Colicchio and his restaurants and lots of other fabulous restaurant owners around the country have worked with us and come together and formed an alternative national restaurant association called RAISE, Restaurants Advancing Industry Standards and Employment. Um, And these 200 restaurant owners, many of them have come with us to Congress and testified in Congress and in state legislatures saying, we actually believe in just getting rid of this system. It doesn't work for workers. It doesn't work for employers. It doesn't work for consumers. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work for any of us. Um, Let's just pay a livable wage to these workers and let tips be on top of that or not at all. And by livable wage, is that, uh, are you referencing the Fight for 15 campaign to raise minimum wage to $15 specifically? Yeah, so we, we believe that uh, the minimum wage, and that's what it is, it's a minimum, the mm-hmm. minimum wage should be 15 with tips on top of that. Okay. Um, if, if restaurants like Danny Myers choose to go to eliminate tipping altogether, then our advocacy is that they do it in a way that makes their workers whole, meaning that they get everything that they would have gotten with tips now from wages. But in California, for example, California just as a state voted to increase the minimum wage all the way to 15, but tips are still on top of that. Okay. Um, whereas in New York, when everybody went to 15, the tipped workers were left out. And in fact, right. tipped workers' wages actually regressed as a part of the $15 bill that just passed in New York. And so we're really hoping that um, we can work with the governor to fix that. Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break um, to hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, Saru and I will be digging a little bit deeper into the Fight for 15 campaign and what this policy looks like in practice. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market, America's healthiest grocery store with more than 400 locations throughout the United States. Download the Whole Foods Market app on your smartphone for recipes, sales, information, and digital coupons. Or visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store closest to you. What you're listening to is Journey from Limestone. This is by Slow Roasters. We will be right back on Eating Matters. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Saru Jayaraman, co-director of Rock United and the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley. Okay, so before we went to break, we started talking about um, the Fight for 15, which is seemingly one of the most successful minimum wage campaigns um, to date. So I'm wondering, Saru, if you can kind of speak to the origins um, a little bit more about this movement for restaurant workers and the way in which the campaign is kind of advocating for these changes that's making it successful. Yeah, so... um So the campaign, Piper 15, started in New York with fast food workers supported by SEIU, the union, um, who went on strike uh, just 
I would say at this point, two or three years ago, um, calling for $15 in the union. And I think the workers' response surprised everybody, even the sponsors, uh, just the way that workers decided that this really, things re- it was time, things really needed to change. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that the strike spread across the country, um, the way that the demands were bold and uh, unashamedly bold, you know, um, that they spread internationally, um, that the actions across the country gained so much um, energy and momentum and so many workers came out just, I think, as I said, in a way that surprised even the original organizers. Um, and it just speaks to a moment in which I think we uh, are both seeing the greatest income inequality in the United States ever, you know, in its history, mm-hmm. even higher than the inequality that we experienced in the Gilded Age. Um, that kind of severe inequality coupled with uh, some real openings and vulnerabilities that we're seeing on the part of the chains and corporate America where they, you know, they are realizing that they're going to have to make changes to keep their workforce. I mean, we are seeing the greatest labor shortage in our industry, the restaurant industry, that I think this industry has seen in its history. It's an incredibly, it's an incredible crisis right now in our industry. Every city that Rock is in, employers are saying, we have never experienced such a labor shortage, and it is because workers just can't survive on the poverty wages that this industry pays anymore. Right. So all of those things coupled, have, you know, we have seen not only uh, bills passed around the country uh, responding to this call for $15, just and, and just a momentous and historic number of bills passed around the country, um, but we've also seen the greatest rift in the restaurant industry that we've ever seen in 15 years of organizing, um, in which suddenly this alternative path that we call the high road to profitability, mm-hmm. it's really led by folks like Danny Meyer and Tom Colicchio and, and Alice Waters and In-N-Out Burger, actually, and um, Blue Bottle Coffee and Zingerman's Restaurants and so many other mm-hmm. great restaurant companies around the country, um, who are already paying livable wages and believe that's the only way to run a successful restaurant, um, we're seeing those folks gain a level of visibility and um, and and traction, and and they've set a trend that we're seeing so many other restaurants now following. It's it's like nothing I've ever seen before, and the response of the Restaurant Association is also incredibly different. You know, they we've seen editorials in the nation's restaurant news saying. You know what? We're just going to have to deal with the fact that the minimum wage is going up. The industry is not dying, as it's always predicted that industry wages, industry jobs are going to be lost, and menu prices are going to go up. And it just hasn't happened in any of the cities or states that the minimum wage has gone up. And so we're seeing a very, very different response from the Restaurant Association. They're much, they're having to respond very, very differently. We even have one local restaurant association that's come out in favor of raising the minimum wage, and so. I think so it's a very different moment than we've ever right. seen before. It's like the beginnings of a, of, a, of a new way of doing business. That's why the book has come out kind of right at that moment. That's why we call it a new standard for yeah. American dining. So I want to talk for a moment about your restaurant colors, where you basically walk the talk. So, And by this, I mean you pay staff a minimum wage of, um, was it $9 an hour for tipped employees and offer benefits such as paying time off and health care. 
Um, in, but in a recent uh, New York Times profile, the author wrote that Colors, quote, has not quite proved the point because the restaurant operates at a slight loss. So what, what do you say in response to opponents uh, of this change who say that this model is not economically viable? I found myself, I read that article and I wanted to, I wanted you to respond. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I want to talk to her. About <laughs> what would you say to that? Well, um, I, you know, just to be clear, Colors was never intended to be uh, you know, we're, we're a nonprofit organization, and the point of Colors is actually that it's a training facility. We run, we train literally. We've trained over six thousand workers at Colors wow. to move up the ladder into livable wage jobs in this industry. Um, so we work. Hundreds of workers come through that place every day mm-hmm. and learn how to be fine dining servers and bartenders. I'm talking about formerly incarcerated people, immigrants, women, people of color. Um, have gone through and gotten really livable wage fine dining jobs. And so it was never intended to be that. I mean, I think the fact that we're running only at a slight loss, paying much higher wages than most people, uh, and not intending to make profit right. is, is pretty good. And I, it, I think that wasn't the point. I think the point is much better made by comparable restaurants all over the city, as I said, 200 of them all over right. the country, that are actually uh, paying just as high wages or some higher than us and experiencing incredibly high profits, you know, growing at a really rapid rate. Um, And not just the greats like Danny Meyer and Tom Colicchio who have very, you know, high price menus and and very fancy restaurants, Mm -hmm. but casual restaurants around New York City, New York State and the country, smaller mom and pop restaurants. I was just in North Carolina this past week. Uh, with Vimla, who's the owner of Vimla's Curry Boston Cafe in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where the wage is $2.13 an hour in, New- in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. She pays all of her tipped workers a minimum of, I believe it's 10 and the median wage in the restaurant is more like 15 um, and and there are several workers in the kitchen making 18 and 19 dollars an hour and she's growing she's so profitable she was featured in a chase commercial she's often asked to speak at unc's business school about uh, profitability i mean right. they prove the point and we don't need to prove the point because that's not the point of colors they yeah. prove the point and they do it much better Okay. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm just ha- happy that you, I had you on the air to respond to that. <laughs> I was like, but I want to know what she would say in response to that. It just kind of ended. Right. So, um, so yeah. you've been obviously doing this work for quite some time now. Um, I'm wondering over the course of your career in the fair labor movement, if there's anything that you've reversed or changed your position on and what, what caused you to do this? So you mentioned before the, um, the move to one fair Wage. So, is there some, anything kind of else that you've really uh, re- like changed course on? I mean, I would say we've matured. <laughs> you know, um, we started as a worker organization, and uh, oftentimes, as we thought about the key issues I brought up wages, benefits, racial discrimination we thought about it from the workers' perspective. And as we became a multi stakeholder organization, with not just workers, but now 200 employers and several thousand consumer members, we're able to see it from employers' perspective as well. And so it's not that we've changed our position, it's that it's much more nuanced. It's not that we think we shouldn't raise wages, it's that we understand that it's hard to do that, and that's why we actually have created a peer support network of employers who can teach each other how to do it, actual training and technical assistance to help restaurants, especially smaller restaurants, learn how they can pay higher wages and provide benefits. 
um, we've learned how to accommodate the challenges that restaurant owners experience and still work with them to push towards what needs to be the goal, which is a family-supporting wage and working condition in the industry. Because, look, if there is such a labor shortage going on right now and we have the highest rates of employee turnover of any industry in the United States, Paying better wages and working conditions has to be achieved even when it's hard, not just for the sake of the workers who are struggling, but really for the long-term viability of this industry and the long-term, you know, um, the long-term viability of our dining experience. You know, if we want to have as consumers a good dining experience where we feel good about what we're eating and, and who we're eating it from, who's serving us, and I think we all need change in this industry. So it's been, it, we've just matured in our approach to how we think about these issues. Absolutely. Okay, so one final question for you. Um, in your book, Behind the Kitchen Door, you discuss what it means to be a conscious eater and consumer. So for our listeners who haven't had the chance to read your work yet, and if you haven't, I would obviously encourage you to do so, um, can you offer guidance on how to best engage with food workers um, on a personal level? Food worker justice, <laughs> not just food workers. <laughs> food worker justice. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, we have a We've created an organization called Diners United, which is a consumer association for people who want to learn more and engage in some way to help change this industry as consumers who are affected by these issues. Um, so you can go to the website of the new book, ForkedTheBook.com. You can find information about Diners United. You can also find an app on there that allows you to know how restaurants are faring on issues of wages, benefits, and promotions so you know which restaurants are doing it right and which restaurants aren't. Mm -hmm. um, the book also provides ratings on those issues. But most importantly, everybody eats out and speaks to um, employer, workers and employers. So for the workers on that website, there's a downloadable little tip card that you can leave in the billfold that, that drives workers to the website so that they can learn how to learn about their own rights and join the movement. Uh, we don't recommend speaking to your server about it because you could get them in trouble. We do mm -hmm. recommend speaking to your favorite restaurant owner about it and saying we love the food and we love the service and we'd love to see you join the high road. And you can join the ranks of Danny Meyer and Tom Clickio and Alice Waters and, and become part of this alternative voice, this alternative trade association raise. Um, and we've had a lot of consumers encourage restaurant owners to actually walk away from the old way, the path of the National Restaurant Association, and join the high road. Um, that's how Blue Bottle Coffee joined. That's how Alice Waters joined. I think many more restaurants could join if you as consumers could encourage your favorite restaurant owners to learn how to take the high road. Okay. I'm going to leave it there for our conversation on food and labor today. Saru, thank you so much for coming on the show. For more, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, for more information on the work that she's engaged in, be sure to check out rockunited.org and pick up a copy of her new book, Forked. Okay. Now it's time for our new segment, the Startup of the Week, featuring... <laughs> There we go. And with the new segment comes new sound effects. <laughs> We're really kicking it up a notch here. Um, okay, our new, our new segment where we, uh, we feature innovative and, and exciting new food organizations and companies at the end of each episode. Um, I am now pleased to introduce Mark Oshima, co-founder and chief marketing executive um, of Aero Farms, an indoor farming startup growing a variety of leafy greens in Newark, New Jersey. Mark, welcome to the show. 
Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Great. Happy to have you. Um, okay, so let's just jump right in. I understand this is a really busy time for you at Aero Farms as you're set to open a new um, huge headquarters uh, at the end of this month with the lofty goal of creating the largest indoor vertical farm. Uh, what is a vertical farm and how does it work? Sure. Yeah, this is an exciting time for us. We've been growing since 2004, and we're growing indoors. We're actually growing in converted warehouse spaces, and we're here in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, we have four different farming operations here. We're actually building out our eighth and ninth farm and what will be the world's largest indoor vertical farm, as well as our new global headquarters. And when we talk about growing indoors, we're growing with aeroponics, so we're misting the roots with nutrients. We're using LED lights to create the perfect environment for the plants so that they can thrive and we're thinking about how do we optimize the plants for taste, texture, color, nutrition, and yield. And we've been doing this since uh, 2004. And so the vertical part of it, is this just a way to maximize space in terms of the way you grow? Can you kind of like sketch this out if you've never, for our listeners, if they've never seen like a uh, indoor growing operation? Exactly. Uh, this is really not about a greenhouse on a roof. This is about in a warehouse space. This is about vertical beds of growing one stack on top of each other. Uh, we're talking about how we can have 75 times more productivity versus the field farm and 10 times more versus a greenhouse. Part of it is around how we optimize the plants. Part of it is around how we optimize the vertical nature of growing. And we're really talking about growing per cubic square foot as opposed to just the square foot. So it's a, a different way of thinking about farming. So um, in an article that I read about your company, um, the author said that you guys sometimes consider yourself to be more of a technology firm than a farming enterprise. Uh, why, why is this? And you know, what are, what are some of the um, technological advancements that you guys have uh, accomplished since you've been started? Sure. started? Yeah, well, first and foremost, we think of ourselves as farmers. We're, we're focusing on uh, on the plants and, and thinking about how we uh, optimize them and, and really thinking about how we create some really different product differentiation out in the marketplace. But how do we do that? We, we use technology. So this is definitely a new way of farming. It's horticulture meets engineering meets data science. We've developed all of our own proprietary growing. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as the apple of farming. We've built the hardware, the growing systems, mm -hmm. and we've also built the software, which is also what we call the growing algorithms. And so We've grown over 250 different types of leafy greens and herbs. Um, so would you say this, this type of growing is more or less energy efficient from other more traditional methods? Yeah, we would look very, very closely. And I think one of the things that uh, we really monitor is that this is a new way of growing from seed to package. And so we're managing the entire process, creating the perfect environment. And we're really optimizing that. And so we have a very specific lens on energy. Uh, we use renewable and alternative energy. Uh, we think about how we can be very efficient with LED lights and target the exact spectrum of light that the plants need so we can actually have more effective photosynthesis. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is a way of growing that uses 95% less water, 40% less fertilizer, and zero pesticides. And so we're constantly thinking. Uh, we're a mission-driven organization. We're always thinking about the environmental footprint. We're part of the Ellen MacArthur Circular Economy uh, 100, where we think about how do we eliminate waste. Uh, and so we're thinking about every aspect of our business about how to be good stewards you know, for the environment. What is the company's um, overall mission and how do you work to give back to the community in which I operate? Because I understand that's a big part of um, what drives you guys. Without question, we're, we're mission-driven. We're thinking about how we can build responsible farms all over the world. Uh, we actually have projects in development on four different continents. Wow. But what we're really excited about within each community, it's about local jobs. It's about 
uh, economic development. Uh, it's about addressing food deserts. It's about increasing access to healthier foods. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're here in Newark, New Jersey. One of the exciting things for us that we've been here, um, we've had a working farm in an inner city school here, Phillips Academy Charter School, for over five years. This working farm is actually in their dining hall. It's the shortest farm-to-table experience around. And so when we see the impact we have with the students uh, within the community and creating jobs, we're hiring locally, uh, it's just tremendously exciting for us to be here and be part of that. That's great. Um, So where besides the cafeteria um, at the charter school in Newark can we find your product? Yeah, so currently uh, we're selling into uh, the local community here within Newark, within northern New Jersey, within the New York metro footprint. We're selling into uh, supermarkets like ShopRite. We're also online at uh, Farmingo. Um, we're in the process of ramping up our production and being able to come to a market soon uh, to where the consumer is. Okay, great. All right. Um, so with that, I'm going to wrap it up. But for all of you guys who don't know Aero Farms, um, be sure to check them out. Mark, can you tell us uh, the website for people to get more information? Sure. Aerofarms.com. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Happy to be able to connect share more about what we're doing. Great. Thank you so much for coming on today. All right. Thank you as well. All right. I want to thank um, both of our guests one more time, Saru Jaramayan and Mark Oshima for coming on the show and for our sponsors um, for your generous support. Our show is produced with the help of two brilliant people, Taylor Lanzett and Austin Bernierski. Um, Our music is done by the one and only Tim Archer, and our engineer is the fabulous Jack Inslee. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe, like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.